0: Russell's family, so good to be with you and uh, be patient with us as we try to figure out uh, the best way for us to gather together around word and uh, somehow even table um, as we try to figure out what it means to be together in these times. And uh, gosh, I just really want to thank Matt and Jill who are working so hard to figure out uh, how to stay connected with you virtually and, and how to put all of this together. But we thought we would uh, uh, just, just kind of talk to you tonight uh, about the passage in Psalm 8. Um, you, you know that many of the psalms are written during hard times. I, I've been surprised in this study of the psalms, the Lent, of how many are lament psalms or grief psalms. Um, and actually, uh, the first seven psalms are uh, filled with a lot of cries for help, a lot of talk about Enemies um, here's just a couple of examples. O Lord, how many are my foes? Save me. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Turn, O Lord, deliver my life, I am weary with moaning. O Lord my God, save me from all my pursuers and deliver me. Well, when you get to Psalm 8, the the feeling is entirely different. And I, I've called Psalm 8 a summer psalm because it just has a sunny disposition. It's not really focused on the problems of this life. It's, it's kind of above all that. It's just about who God is. He's on his throne and life is good. And I don't know uh, really the reasoning behind uh, what went where in the prayer book, but it's almost like whoever put it together, started off with a lot of psalms of of sadness and grief, and then said, okay, uh, that's important, but let's stop for a minute and just praise God. Let's think about the character of our God in a time like this. And I think that's probably good advice uh, for us today. Um, it is important to grieve and lament. And uh, matter of fact, in our um, daily letter that I'm going to write to you this week, Uh, You can get that by signing up for the newsletter. I just want to talk a little bit and explore this idea of of our need to stop and grieve what we've lost. But it's also important to to look up, to praise, to reflect on God's character. And that's what Psalm 8 helps us do. The psalm begins, O Lord, our Lord. And uh, if you have the ESV, and I think most English Bibles, you might notice that The first Lord is in caps, and the second Lord is in lowercase. And that's because in the Hebrew, the first Lord is Yahweh, and the second Lord is Adonai. Uh, When the the Hebrew writers use Yahweh, they're often often referring to God's covenant faithfulness to his people, Uh, just how loyal he is to us, just how he stays with us, just as he... Called Abraham to himself, and then never abandoned Israel. Never abandons us. That's Yahweh. Adonai stresses his sovereignty and his his uh, lordship. Uh, and so, this was kind of a little uh, Hebrew shorthand that readers would have instantly kind of filled in a, a bigger picture, and it would have been something like saying. Oh, great God of the covenant, God who pledged to be faithful to Abraham, God who led our people out of Egypt, God who led us through the desert, you're also our dear Lord and King and Sovereign. Yes, we have much to grieve and much to fear, but today we remind ourselves that you are committed to us and that you are sovereign over all of life. So those would have been some of the theological uh, and faith commitments that were wrapped up in that little opening phrase. And then David says, How majestic is your name in all the earth? Uh, God's name is his character. And the Hebrew word for majestic is translated all throughout the Hebrew Scriptures uh, as large, noble, powerful, splendid, magnificent, excellent. Excellent. And so David is beginning by saying, God, your character is excellent. Then he says, you have set your glory above the heavens. Uh, the root of the Hebrew word for glory means to be heavy. It actually comes from uh, a great soldier's armor. A great soldier would have lots of heavy armor. And so the word came to mean strength and, and, and power. And. And uh, Then it began to be applied to God as the respect and the honor due to God because of his strength and power. And there's also this idea when when glory is used in the Hebrew scriptures of God's radiant presence, that somehow the essence of his being, this excellent being, is diffused throughout the whole universe. We might even think of it as, like, energy that somehow emanates from the very core of who he is and throbs through the whole universe. And so David begins by reminding us that this is God's character. He is excellent, and out of that excellence throbs this glory throughout all of the universe. And he will end this psalm by repeating uh, this sense of praise. Now, this is very lofty stuff. And David doesn't leave us there. The, the middle part of the psalm, he takes us down um, to daily life, and he gives us reasons why we should uh, praise this excellent and glorious God. The first, the first one is in uh, verse 2. Uh, Out of the mouth of babes and infants, you have established strength because of your foes, to still the enemy and the avenger. Now, what does David mean there? Well, the word strength can be uh, translated another way as strong fortress. And and David is, you know, it's a poem, it's a prayer. He's using metaphor here, but he's saying that in Yahweh's kingdom, uh, a kingdom that is so different than the kingdoms of this world, the praises of little children, can undermine even the greatest foe. Uh, this week, I got a text from a friend, and I, I wish I could show it to you. Maybe we'll figure out how to put it on the show notes. But um, it was her granddaughter who was staying with her grandfather, who's a pastor, and the pastor is doing something like what we're trying to do. He's He's delivering a sermon online, and the little three-year-old granddaughter has her hands folded in prayer as she prays for her grandfather as he preaches the word. It's a beautiful picture of uh, the power of a a little one's prayer. You know, during times like this, we think a lot about protecting our kids, and and, uh, we should. But we also need to remember that children have a remarkable capacity— to really know the ways of God, uh, sometimes I think they, they kind of get it uh, more than we do. It, you remember that time in the Gospels where the disciples are trying to protect the Lord and some kids want to sit in his lap and, and they shoo him away and Jesus says, Oh no, let the little ones come to me. Don't hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. There's a way that little people understand the things of God Better than some of us who've maybe grown a little cynical uh, over the years. There's a Lauren Daigle song that begins with this: uh, these words, "The world waits for a miracle, the heart longs for a little bit of hope." Oh come, oh come, Emmanuel! A child prays for peace on earth, and she's calling out from a sea of hurt. Oh come, oh come, Emmanuel! So children are praying too these days. And Scripture says that sometimes their simple, earnest prayers uh, have the power to overturn the enemy. So pray for your child this week. Maybe let them pray for you too. Well, David shifts his gaze from the nursery uh, to the cosmos in verse 3. And as he recalls, another reason for praising our majestic and glorious God. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place. (laughs) David uh, was a king, of course. Um, He lived in Jerusalem much of his life, but he also spent many evenings sleeping by a fire underneath the stars. And the moon and the stars sang to him of the glory of God. I was taking my uh, prayer lap this morning at Lakeshore Park, and uh, some little one, again, a child, I think, had taken a big fat piece of chalk and uh, written on the, uh, the path at Lakeshore, <clears throat> Stay up for the stars tonight. And then a big smiley face uh, underneath that. Now, why would she say that or he say that? Well, somehow that little one knows that uh, God meets us in the stars, that his, his glory is revealed at night in the, in the handiwork of the cosmos. Uh, I, I have found myself in this time just wanting to spend more time at night underneath the stars and, and the moon uh, with, with our Lord. Now, stars in the city are, uh, of course, very different than the stars David would have known in the wilderness of Ziff and <clears throat> all the other wildernesses that he <laughs> spent time in. Several summers ago, my son-in-law and my son and I uh, went backpacking in Banff, up in uh, the Canadian Rockies, and my son hauled a tripod and a camera 20 miles into the backcountry because... He wanted to take pictures uh, at night. And I remember wondering, why on earth would you haul all that back here? Well, finally, we were at the site, and uh, he got out of his uh, sleeping bag about 2 in the morning, and he went out and set it up, and he came back, and he said, Dad, you've got to see this. And it was cold. I didn't want to get out of the bag. Um, But he said, No, no, Dad, you've got to see this. And I'm glad I did. Um, Stepped outside of the tent, and it was... Like stepping into a galaxy. I'd never seen the brilliance of starlight like that. Uh, Orion, Taurus, Gemini, the big bear, the little bear. We were right in the middle of all of them. Uh, uh, A crescent moon just was uh, lofting high over a craggy cliff and uh, joining the chorus of praise. It was uh, just a staggering uh, moment of, of worship. And as David thinks about the stars and the moon and the God who flung them into place, he's struck with a profound question that I think all of us have probably asked. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care about us? (laughs) The God who flung Mars into orbit is mindful of us. He thinks about us. The God who breathed the first black hole into existence cares for us. He cares about the hopes we have and the fears that we have. How can this be? Well, this is what Scripture reveals to us. This is what we believe. This is the God of our our faith that we don't worship. Uh, a hidden God. We don't worship a God that started this whole thing and then uh, pulled away, but, but a God who walks in the garden with Adam and Eve, a God who visits Abraham and speaks with him, uh, a God who comes to Moses in a burning bush, a God who gives law and then later letters and prophets, and uh, ultimately a God that gives his own son, Jesus Christ. And that's the God we meet in Scripture. He is a God who theologians say is both transcendent and imminent. He is both majestic and glorious, but right there uh, with us. He knows and he cares. Well, many people are asking the question, especially right now as the virus uh, rages across the world, well, where is God? Where is God in all of this? And Uh, I, of course, don't have a perfect answer for that. I certainly have not unraveled the mystery of evil. Um, But I know this to be true. He knows us, and he cares for us. So where is God? Um, He's right here. Uh, He knows us, and he cares for us. And I think that's about all we need to know. Well, this would be reason enough to praise God. But there is more. David marvels that this majestic, glorious Creator God has created us in His image um, and given us a vocation, a role to play in the world. Yet you have made Him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. Now, the word honor is the same Hebrew word we saw in verse one, referring to the majesty of God. And and David obviously has in mind the opening chapter of Genesis here, where the first human beings are made in the image of God, because he's saying that every human being, whether a Presidents or prisoners or people living in homeless shelters or people living in the Hamptons, that they all reflect God's glory and majesty. And then David says, You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. So again, we're in the opening uh, chapter of the book of Genesis, where God gives his sons and daughters dominion over the earth. Now, when we think of the word dominion, we might think of the word dominate, but nothing could be further than what is intended by the word dominion in Genesis 1 and Psalm 8. God, who loves and cares for the world, gives us dominion. Uh, In other words, allows us to care for the world on his behalf. The God who made the world shares the responsibility of caring for the world with us. And we do this as he does it, through sacrificial love even through giving our lives as he did in Christ. Now, Adam and Eve had dominion, I guess, over the whole earth. But before long, as people came into the scene, uh, shepherds started to care for sheep and farmers for crops and builders for houses. And uh, people started to have different dominion assignments, uh, different spheres of influence, where God had said, here, this is the little corner of the world I want you to care for. And we praise him for this, especially in times of crisis like this, because that means that we've got work to do. Uh, We have a story we're a part of. We have uh, something to get up for in the morning. David Brooks, the New York Times columnist, wrote an essay this week called The Moral Meaning of the Plague. And he asks, how do we find meaning in a time like this? And he he turns to Viktor Frankl, who wrote so eloquently about how he uh, found meaning in a Nazi death camp. And Frankl said that we can find meaning in difficult, even horrific circumstances when we do good work, when we love people around us, and when we display courage. Well, then Brooks writes, I'd like to add one other source of meaning. It's the story we tell about this moment. It's the way we tie our moment of suffering to a larger narrative of redemption. It's the way we then go out and stubbornly live out that story in the world. The plague today is an invisible monster, but it gives birth to a better world. Well, David Brooks is reminding us of the deeper story we need to be telling ourselves in this moment. And it's not the horror story that is continually unfolding 24 hours a day uh, on our screens. It's the story beneath that story, or maybe it's the story above that story. It's a story about a king. And the king's character is excellent. The stars and the moon are his poetry written in the meter of brightness and light. He's not a distant king. He's not a blind watchmaker who's retired. No, this king is mindful of us. He thinks about us. He cares about us. And this king knows we need more than the security of his love. He knows we also need the significance of his purpose. We need meaning. We need a reason to live. We need a vocation. And so he gives us one. He gives us a dominion assignment, a special place to play, a special role to play, all of our lives, but especially now, in the battle of our lifetimes. Even now, the Lord, our Lord, is quietly at work in through, above, beyond prepositions fail us. But he's quietly at work bringing the kingdom of God into this world. And we get to help. And I really think if that's the story that we tell ourselves about this trying day, that somehow we are joining with the excellent king and bringing about the healing of the world, even in our little corner of the universe, we will find meaning and hope to face the challenges ahead. Now, do you have any sense of what your dominion assignment is? Here are a couple of questions you could ask to find out who or what am I responsible for? Who or what do I influence on a regular basis? Who or what do I think about and worry about and pray about? Those are a couple of questions that can kind of get you started uh, so you'll have a general sense of your role in the story. Well, we praise God because he's asked us to help him care for our world. So think about the garden that the Creator has placed you in it, maybe as large as a nation or as small as a hospital bed. And Now that you kind of have your dominion in mind, follow Frankel's advice. Do good work. Love. Be courageous. And remember that you're part of a redemptive story. You're helping God build a better world. Now, a lot of us are asking, and uh, I think it's appropriate to ask, what on earth is, is God doing in this? And uh, I, I, of course, do not know. I would not dare to speak for God. Um, I'll, I'll tell you what I'm thinking about. Love to know what you're thinking about. Here's what it feels like to me. It feels like something is shifting. It feels like something old is being burned away so that something new can be born. There is a beautiful flower in Yellowstone National Park that only grows after a forest has been ravaged by fire. Maybe this is what is happening now. Perhaps beauty lies on the other side of ashes. This is, after all, the lesson of Lent.